0: All right, we are continuing our study through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians here on the listener's commentary, and in this recording we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. It's a short section, but there's a lot in it and it's terribly important because it really sets the stage for the next handful of chapters here in 2 Corinthians. And so let's make sure we remember the context. Paul is explaining to the Corinthians why he changed his travel plans, why he did not come to them the way he originally said he would. And he's doing that in order to demonstrate that he's not fickle or wishy-washy or untrustworthy, that he doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. So in the preceding paragraph at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul stated that he didn't come to them in order to spare them. And what he meant by that is this, that we know what his most recent plans were, that he was going to wrap up things in Ephesus, sail over to Corinth, spend some time in Corinth, travel by foot north into Macedonia, and then back down from Macedonia to Corinth before he sailed over to Judea. But he changed those plans. And instead, because of all the problems in the church and everything that was going on in Corinth, Paul made an impromptu trip from Ephesus to Corinth. It was a trip that went very badly and was very grievous. In fact, it was so painful and created so much grief and sorrow that Paul said, I don't want to do that again to you or to me. And so what Paul decided to do was send a letter to them by way of Titus. Titus was going to be the mailman. And while Titus was delivering the letter, Paul figured he would wrap up things in Ephesus, and then he had arranged to meet Titus uh, up north, hopefully, uh, of Ephesus. And so Paul is sending this letter by way of Titus, hoping that that letter solves some of the problems that are going on in the church, and some of the things that came out in that painful visit and then wrapping up his time in Ephesus. And so in that preceding paragraph, Paul has explained all of that. Now what he does here in verse 12 is he continues the narrative of what happened, the story of what happened, how he stayed in Ephesus, headed to Troas, and all of that. So he continues that narrative in verses 12 and 13, then he breaks off that narrative, and we'll talk about what happens there before we jump into verse 14. So here's the continuing narrative of Paul's plans. Verse 12, now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but saying goodbye to them I went on to Macedonia. So Paul writes the letter, a a painful letter. He now gives it to Titus. Titus is going to take it to Corinth. Paul wraps up his time in Ephesus. And when he figures, okay, it's been long enough time for Titus to have sent the letter, answered questions, dealt with the issue, and hopefully get back to Troas, Paul leaves Ephesus And he goes to Troas. And so that's what he means when he says in verse 12, Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. And so he left Ephesus, headed north to Troas, which was up on the northwestern coast uh, of what is modern-day Turkey, uh, up north of Ephesus. And so Paul headed there, figured he would spend a little time there, meet with the Christians there for a bit and hopefully connect with Titus. So he arrives, he says in verse 12, at Troas. There's actually a large door open for him for ministry, but he had no rest for his spirit. And so he's just worried about the situation in Corinth. He's worried about Titus. He's worried about how that they, they responded to that very direct and painful letter that he sent them by way of Titus. And so there he is in Troas. Lots of ministry opportunities, but, but no Titus. And so Paul decided to uh, part ways with Troas for now and see if he couldn't find Titus in Macedonia. So saying goodbye to them, he sails across the Aegean to the west into Macedonia, uh, probably to Neapolis and on into Philippi. And so he's looking for Titus and hoping to find him. And in a very real sense, all of this, telling this narrative, this story, as brief as it is there in verses 12 and 13, all of it continues to communicate how much the Corinthians mean to him. He bypassed significant ministry opportunities in Troas because he was concerned about them. He bypassed those opportunities because he wanted to hear from Titus how things went. So he gave all that. That's how much they mean to him. And so all of this continues communicating that. Now, As we're reading along after verse 13, here's what we would expect. We would expect Paul would tell what happened when he sailed into Macedonia. Did he find Titus or not? What kind of news report did Titus bring from Corinth? How did they respond? We would expect to find the answers to those kinds of questions, but Paul doesn't do that. At least not here. He does it eventually clear in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 5 and following, we finally get the rest of the story. But from here uh, at 2.14 all the way through 7.4... Paul breaks off the narrative and instead he begins to describe his ministry. And so in between these little bits about looking for Titus and finding Titus, we have a very long and very important section as Paul talks about his ministry and how he views his ministry and why his ministry looks the way it does. And why sometimes it looks so weak and inglorious and all of that. And so Paul is going to focus for the next handful of chapters on the nature of his ministry. And so he breaks off the account about Titus and begins to describe his ministry here. And he does so with a very picturesque, even in the cultural context, a fairly graphic picture, of Paul's ministry. And so notice verse 14, breaking off the narrative, Paul says, but thanks be to God. So he breaks off the story of looking for Titus and finding Titus and says, but thanks be to God. And I'm pretty certain Paul has finding Titus in mind, because when you flip the pages ahead and you look at kind of spoiler alert, what happened when he found Titus and Uh, chapter 7, verse 5, we find out that Titus brought a largely positive report. And so I, I hazard to guess that Paul has all that in mind and in his heart as he's writing this and breaking this off here. The Corinthians would have known how they responded. Titus knew how they responded, right? And so they would have had all that in mind. And so I think Paul has this in mind, but thanks be to God. And really everything that follows over the next several chapters is an outflow of this expression of praise to God for his ministry. That's what he's doing. Thanks be to God for my ministry. Thanks be to God that he used that letter I sent by Titus in your life. Thanks be to God for everything God does me. And he's going to go on and describe some of that here and what follows. And so the entire description of his ministry flows out of this gratitude to God for the ministry and the work that God is doing in and through Paul and Paul's team, Titus, Timothy and other members of his ministry team. Um, And so he says this, he begins to describe God, who he is thinking, and he describes him this way. He says that God is the one leading them. Notice, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So literally what he says is the one leading us. That's who God is. God's the one leading Paul and his team. That's the us here. Paul and his ministry team, the one leading us. It's a participle describing what God is doing. And there's actually two participles in what follows. And this is the first one. God is the one who's leading them in triumph in Christ. And that word triumph is very important. I don't know what picture comes to your mind when you hear the word triumph. But I do know what picture would have come to the original audience's mind. Because this particular word that's just translated triumph, actually doesn't just mean merely triumph. It actually meant something very specific in Paul's first century context. What it referred to was a well-known event, and that event was a triumph Parade, or sometimes referred to as a triumphal procession. It referred to a giant parade where a victorious leader, general of some sort, or uh, usually a general, uh, won some dramatic and significant. Um, victory over their enemies and in some way brought great honor to Rome. And so the Roman Senate gave this general the right to hold a parade celebrating their triumph and their victory. And that general would be on a chariot, standing tall, and in you know the most glamorous garb of the day, wearing a victor's crown on his head. Uh, there would be uh, prisoners of war that were part of that parade. Sometimes those prisoners of war would actually be executed and killed at the end of the parade. Uh, although, even though sometimes that's what's always talked about in the literature, it seems like there's not nearly as Uh, Much description of that in the original sources, as you would think, but sometimes that would happen. There would be a sacrifice to Jupiter at the end of that, and so white bulls would be part of the parade. Uh, There would be people in the parade dancing and singing. There would be uh, pictures of uh, the military conquest. There would be spoils of war, sometimes passed out along the parade route. It was a big deal. And that's what Paul is describing here by the word triumph. God is the triumphant one. He is the one who has won a great victory in and through Jesus. And Paul and his ministry team, they're servants or maybe even captives of this this triumphant God. And God is leading Paul and his team all throughout the Roman world, displaying his victory through them. That's what Paul is painting. And so... Paul thanks God, who who is the victorious king, and who leads Paul and his team everywhere he goes. Now, that's the first description of God's activity. Uh, What does God display as he leads Paul and his team around? What does he manifest through them? Well, that's the second description. The second participle is this. Uh, Paul is thankful that God not only leads them, but... Through us reveals the fragrance of the knowledge of him in every place. And so God is the one leading them in this triumphal parade. And God is the one revealing the fragrance of the knowledge of God in every place. Those are the two participles. Leading and revealing. Leading and displaying. Leading and making known or manifesting. It's a participle again. And so Paul thanks God who leads them. And who reveals himself or the knowledge of himself through them. And notice the way the revealing is described here. God is the one who, through Paul and his team, reveals the fragrance of the knowledge of God in every place. And so God is revealing or displaying or manifesting the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ in every place. It's an interesting metaphor, like revealing a smell. (laughs) You typically don't think of revealing a smell or manifesting a smell. Just don't press the language quite like that. We get the idea. God is making known through Paul and his team, or making plain through them, the aroma of the knowledge of Christ all throughout the empire, wherever they go. And once again, this fits with what we know of the triumphal parades in the Roman world. And there were a lot of them. They're referred to in inscriptions and in literature and in artwork of various kinds. And in fact, we have over 300 specific descriptions of them. So we know quite a bit about them. And this fits with that. Part of the parade involved incense bearers, people who, in some accounts, would actually be like in pride of place. They would be right around the the victor's chariot, and they would be wafting their little um, burners with incense in them, bringing the smell of victory along the parade route as they went. And Paul pictures himself and his team in that role. That's the best way to understand what Paul means by this. I recognize that some Commentators and some describers. In fact, I've taught it this way in the past myself, and I've come to realize I I misunderstood actually Paul's language here. Some describe this as Paul pictures himself as like a prisoner of war who's going to uh, die at the end of the parade route. I just think that misunderstands what Paul actually says here. He doesn't picture himself that way. He pictures himself as an incense bear, and God is. Um, wafting the fragrance of victory along the parade route, everywhere Paul goes, um, and and offering the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ in every place. That's the picture Paul describes. And so Paul doesn't describe himself as the prisoner of war who is uh, captive by God and is like one who's going to die at the end of the parade route. Um, I don't think Paul believed that. Paul doesn't describe his ministry in the following chapters that way. And so I think it's better just to take the language that Paul actually says of what God is doing through them. And he is displaying the fragrance, making known the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. And so what Paul is picturing himself as is an incense bearer in God's triumphal parade. And everywhere they go, they smell like Jesus. They bring the aroma of the Knowledge of Jesus everywhere they go, and Paul is incredibly thankful for that. Even though he he's a servant and he's not the victor, and even though, as he'll describe in future paragraphs. It's a lowly role, right? If you're going to display the knowledge of Jesus and you got to embody the pattern of Jesus and the pattern of Jesus is the way of the cross. And Paul's going to talk all about that in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. And yet Paul's just grateful that he gets to be a part of God's victory celebration. And so Paul goes on in verses 15 and following really to explain that this fragrance of Christ that God is revealing through them actually smells different depending on the people. To some people, it smells one way. To another people, uh, it smells a a different sort of way. Look what he says. So, um, as they waft the fragrance of victory and the smell of the knowledge of Christ everywhere they go, he says, For we are a fragrance. Again, Paul doesn't see himself as this prisoner of war like in some commentaries. He sees himself as an incense bearer. And now even, we carry the very fragrance of Jesus. We carry the very smell of Jesus. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. Um, And so this incense, notice, is wafting out over the people, but it's also being offered up to God like an offering, like an incense offering. And so we are a fragrance of Christ. We smell like Jesus to God but among the people. Uh, And so it goes both directions. And it has a different odor depending on which people are smelling it. And so we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Um, And so we're among all the people, among the believers, those being saved, and among those who are perishing, those who don't believe. To the one, we are an aroma From death to death, that is, to the perishing, to unbelievers, Paul is saying, we smell like death. Um, And again, he's playing off of the victory parade to those who were killed in battle, to those prisoners of war who may actually be executed at the end of the parade route. um, This aroma of victory on the parade route, well, It's a reminder of death and of being conquered. And so Paul says to the perishing, to those who don't believe in Jesus, uh, Jesus' victory smells like death. To the other, that is to those who are saved, it's an aroma of life to life. And so to the saved, to those who know and love Jesus and are actually part of his people, to those people, Paul and his team and their approach to ministry smell like life. And I, I don't know for sure, but I kind of wonder if there's actually a little implicit kind of challenge to Paul's opponents here, um, to those that he will directly address in chapters 10 through 13 of the letter, but they're kind of in the background here, and Paul oftentimes kind of glances in their direction. I, I just wonder uh, that... Uh, if he's not glancing a tiny bit in their direction when he says that you know they smell like death, that is, if Paul and his team's approach to ministry, if their cross-shaped approach to ministry that looks weak and lowly and inglorious, if that is repugnant to you, well then maybe maybe there's a little glance in the direction of his opponents that says maybe you should even examine if you're saved. If you don't like the smell of cross-shaped victory, then maybe. You should examine even if you're saved because the cross is not just something that purchases forgiveness. It's the pattern for life. And so for Paul, it's the pattern for his ministry. And and so it seems like there's probably a little glance in that direction to his opponents that he will directly address later on. Not totally sure. The primary point is Paul is thanking God that he gets to participate in God's victory celebration, that God achieved this victory through Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And as part of that, Paul and his team, everywhere they go, uh, they, they get to share the aroma of Jesus Christ and his victory. Even though that victory came through a cross, that's what they get to offer to the world. And so they're part of God's victory celebration. And for that Paul is incredibly grateful. And so he ends this little section by saying, and who is adequate for these things? Who is competent or sufficient for these things? Now, you could read that question two ways. Paul saying, who is adequate for that thing? Certainly we're not, and no one really is, right? And in a certain sense, that's true. But it seems like in view of where Paul goes in the very next section when Paul says, who is adequate for these things? Paul seems to want to answer in the affirmative. We are. Me and my team are. And it seems like that's the way Paul is going to answer this question in the paragraphs that follow where he, he, and he actually gives an initial answer here in verse 17 when he says, "For We're not like the many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That seems to be... Paul's initial affirmative answer, we're adequate. Why? Because we're not peddling the word of God for profit. Uh, We actually speak from sincerity and we speak as underneath God, as before God in the presence of God. And Paul's going to develop that in the paragraphs that follow. And so it seems like Paul is saying, we're adequate for these things because of our approach to ministry because of our cross-shaped nature of our ministry, because of our lowly um, nature of ministry that clearly embodies the genuineness of our approach to ministry, that clearly means we're not looking for human approval. We're only looking for divine appro- approval, approval from God. And so Paul describes his ministry here as not like the many who peddle the word of God, which means the idea is Hucksters, shysters, who peddle the word of God for profit—that's the idea of this word peddling. It's, um, you know, doing something in such a way as kind of underhanded and sneaky to advantage yourself and make make a, a living off it. It's the old, you know, snake oil sell salesman who, you know, has some sort of get-rich-quick scheme. Is kind of the idea. Paul says we're not hucksters. We're not shysters who peddle the word of God in such a way as trying to make a profit, quick profit off of it. But instead, um, our competency comes from the fact that we, Paul would say, we speak from sincerity. Um, And not only that, but we also speak from God. That is, God's the source of our adequacy. God's the source of our ministry. God's the source of our message. And that's why it looks the way it does. And so Paul says, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And so this is going to be central to how Paul describes his ministry in the paragraph that follows, this Godwardness of it. Uh, we speak as from God. We speak in Christ. We speak in in the sight of God, it's all under God and before God and looking for God's approval. And really that brings us to kind of this concluding reflection as we wrap up the section. And that is ministry that celebrates God's victory by embodying the knowledge of Jesus. And the knowledge of Jesus is suffering knowledge. It's cross-shaped knowledge, right? Like to know Jesus is to know the way of the cross. And Paul will go on to develop that in the chapters that follow. He doesn't emphasize that here per se. In this paragraph, uh, this is just the first paragraph. That'll become very clear, particularly in chapter 4. But so here, what we can note is... That everything Paul does in ministry is intended to celebrate God, to celebrate the victory God has achieved through the suffering of Jesus. It's intended to draw attention to God. It's not intended to advantage Paul. He's not trying to peddle the word of God, right? He does his ministry as God being the source and God being the primary audience. He even offers the incense as he travels all throughout the the empire. Even though it's wafting out to people, it's also wafting up to God as an incense offering. And so God is the source and the ultimate audience for Paul's ministry. God is the source and the ultimate one before whom Paul acts. And so ministry uh, that Paul says this is the true way of ministry. It's ministry that celebrates God, comes from God, is before God, and celebrates the victory of God. Hey, it's John. Thanks for tuning into this session on the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry. And what that means is it's only possible for us to give this away for free because there's a whole team of people that give $5 a month, $10 a month, a month or more in order to make this possible. So if you're one of the supporters of this ministry, uh, know that I am deeply grateful for you. Thanks a ton for your support. If you've been impacted by this ministry in any way, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters? There's really two ways you can do that. You can swing over to listenerscommentary.com. Easiest way is just to click the give button and that'll bring you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount. You can click a little box that says, make this a monthly donation. And all those funds go through a registered nonprofit, World Family Mission, and come directly to me. Or you you can sign up for the Study Hub. Both ways get you the Study Hub. Either sign up on the Study Hub page or give through World Family Mission, and all monthly donors will get access to the Study Hub, which includes pictures, charts, um, maps, and all sorts of things just to help you to dig into the text a little bit more there on the website. So if you've been impacted, would you prayerfully consider supporting this ministry in one of those two ways? And in advance, I just want to say thanks a ton for your support.